Thank you, Drew and Aaron, Angie team. Good morning, church. Hey, if you'll grab your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6, that's where we're going to be in just a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, very specifically, is where we're going to find ourselves today. Uh, Before we do that, we're going to take an opportunity to do what we do every week here, which is have an opportunity for family prayer together. Um, Really excited about this moment uh, because today we're going to talk about a couple of things uh, that we can pray for very intentionally. Number one, um, as we enter into our family prayer moment, I just want to take a moment to remind you kind of where we've been uh, in the life of our church, particularly in this season. We've been really focusing on something called pursuit as a vision, as an identity marker for who we are as a church. We want to be people who are in pursuit of Jesus and also others. Well, what does that look like? To really be in pursuit, to really be after Jesus, to be after others, really kind of the way we describe it and frame it is like this. One, that we would know our purpose, that we'd understand that our purpose is to know God, to deepen our relationship with him, to be transformed by his spirit, and ultimately to make disciples. In that vein, we've been called to, because we understand our purpose, to live intentionally and make real decisions, active things that we're doing continually in our day-to-day lives so that we can grow in our faith and encourage others to grow in theirs as well. Finally, you know, when we think about what it looks like to have a relationship with God, it is important and necessary for us to recognize that that is personal. That we have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. His life, his death, and resurrection. And now we have been marked with a deposit. The Holy Spirit of God indwells us. And we have a relationship with God. But quite often in our world, we live as individuals. And so that means that we come to places even like this where we're with a bunch of people, but we're really here kind of just for ourselves. Right? We come to sing ourselves or we come to hear a sermon ourselves and we try to get, get good news, the good news of the gospel, and then go out to our week and go do our thing. When in actuality, we're meant to be more than people who come together gathered in one room for individual purposes. Instead, we're meant to be this body that lives in actual community together where we have real life and real dynamic relationships with one another. Here's what we're praying for today in that vein of community. We are praying for God to grow our community. And this looks two very specific ways. One, there is a numerical component, right? For us to grow in such a way that we can deepen in relationship with each other, there has to be more others here. We believe that God is calling us into this community to go and minister to people who are beyond these walls. Not just to stay as we are, but instead to invite others in and to see our church grow. But we also want to grow in depth, in deepening intentional relationships with one another. We want to grow. We want people to come and actually be a real part of this church. Now, many of you are that because you are what we call a member You didn't just fill out a card. You actually entered into a covenant, promise, relationship. Hey, I'm going to be here. I'm going to share my gifts and abilities. I feel like God has called me in Jesus Christ to be a part of this church and really take part in that. And there are other folks, and we've seen and experienced, and I firsthand have talked with a number of you recently who have said, hey, I've kind of been coming. I've been exploring. I like this place. It seems really great. What do I do next? I want to give you three steps and practical ways today to help you understand who we are as a church, and how we can grow as a church. Number one, 
If you want to be involved here and get really connected and be a part of a deep, rich faith community, the first thing we're going to do uh, is have a membership meeting. This is going to take place March 17th. And for us, this is not like you don't join the church at this. This is a place for you to come discover, ask questions, get to know us as a church. You get to meet the entire staff uh, and, and you get to ask questions about who we are and get some of the vision and what we're doing in this. This is going to take place March 17th, immediately following our worship service. It'll be kind of like a, a 1130 to 1245. We'll have lunch provided, all that kind of stuff. If you're interested in that, you can go out to Connection Point and sign up for that today. The second thing is after that membership meeting and you kind of learn a little bit about the church, you meet with a pastor. Look, I grew up in a church where you just walk down the aisle and you just filled out a card, and that works for a lot of churches, but we want to do something where we get to really know you. We hear your story, how you came to know the Lord, and ways very specifically that we can help you plug in and begin to connect with people in this body. Third, we want you to commit to the church publicly. That's what it looks like when someone comes up and they say, I do believe that Jesus Christ has called me to be an active part of this church at this time to give my, of my spiritual gifts and abilities so that people here might grow in gospel belief and life and love for others. So that moment that happens is not just this like perfunctory thing where we just do something. It's actually a real covenant moment where, some, where you're committing to the church publicly and saying, I long to be a part of this place. All right, so this sounds like a, a lot of information, right? Like, why, why are we talking about this? Does this? How does this connect to prayer? Here's the thing I want you to pray for. I want you to pray for people in this room that have been here and visiting, that they would come to our membership meeting and explore our church and just to see if God is calling them to be here. Because here's what I will tell you. There are other Bible-believing, Christ-centered, gospel churches in this community that we love and we partner with. This might not be the place for you, and if it's not, we want to help you find that place where you can go and be a part of the local church here in your community. Second, we want people to experience the joy of knowing the people who are shepherding and pastoring them. That's really, really important to us, and we want people to take part in that. We want you to take part in that if you're exploring this place. Third and finally, we want to commit to one another. To really live in community together, not to just say, that's the place that I go on Sundays. The church is a who, not a where. We're a people. We're a body. We're Christ's body created for his glory, and we're meant to have mutual love and affection for one another. And that means like we commit to each other. I don't know if you know this, but sometimes this church thing can be messy. It can be hard. There can be difficult conversations. There can be moments of frustration, disappointment. You let people down, I let people down, right? I need grace, forgiveness, and mercy. We all do. We don't just get hurt and run. No, we commit to one another. We stay together. We work together. Why? So that we can pursue the unity, the spirit, the bond of love and peace in Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want to ask you to pray specifically that we would grow as a church. And as a result, people would come to know Jesus, and we would deepen in our affection and care for one another. Amen? I need more of that. If you will, amen. <laughs> right? I can't tell if you're saying you need more of that, or you're saying I also need more of that. Um, let's take an opportunity to bow our heads and pray together. Heavenly Father, you have blessed us with your body. You've given us the gift of the local church, of brothers and sisters Father, who can provide encouragement, who can exhort us, who can really help us see not just who you are, Father, 
but who we are in our deep need for you. And Father, in that, we build relationships and we connect with one another. And for that, we're so thankful, Lord, the way you've blessed us through brothers and sisters here. God, I pray that you bring more people here. And God, I, I pray genuinely that it would not merely be because they left some other church and came here, but God, I pray that you would grow this place through salvation. I pray that we would be people who are sharing the gospel with people in our lives and people are coming to know you and experience you for the very first time. And God, that we would grow in love for one another, care for one another. Father, the church wouldn't be a place simply that we, we see as a building in which we attend worship services on Sunday morning, but instead the people that we are bonded with in your son Jesus, that we live with continually in love. God, would you help us become that church and cause us to grow? Father, I pray that you will use membership meetings and meetings with pastors and opportunities to commit and, and profess our desire to love others um, publicly as a part of this body. God, I pray that you'll do all of these things for your glory, Father, and for our good. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to be in 1 Timothy 6, so 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Uh, we're in this series right now where we're talking about giving, and very specifically and practically, we're talking about financial giving. Um, as we jump in this morning, I want to share with you this, this funny thing, this skit that happened, or skit is really just part of a sitcom. Uh, has anybody seen The Office? Are you folks familiar with The Office? One of my favorite scenes is this moment in The Office where... Michael is convinced, Michael Scott, the, the, the guy who's directed everything here, he's convinced that he's found this unique money-making opportunity because his desire is to get rich. He wants to be rich. So he meets this guy, Phil, and Phil recruits him to be a part of this thing where he is selling calling cards. In Michael's words, and he's just really repeating what Phil's told him, calling cards are the way of the future right? So he begins to tell his team how they can be a part of it. And here's what it looks like. Michael says, all right, here's Phil. And this is what Phil did. He recruited me and this other guy. And he recruited each of us so that we can go out and recruit people. So we're going to, I'm going to recruit you. So he's looking at, uh, he's looking at uh, Jim and Toby and all these folks around the table. So he's like, now we're going to recruit you guys next. There's going to be more people that come along Eventually, they'll come, there we go, but they come along, and you guys are now going to have the opportunity to know all about these calling cards, and this is going to be this amazing thing, and you guys are actually going to go out, and you're going to recruit even more people. There are more people that are going to, and then you can see what's happening here, and, he, and then Michael asked them, and he says, who wants to get rich? And a couple people raise their hand, and one of them is Jim, and Jim says this, I don't, I mean, I'm not really worried about that, but you realize that this is a pyramid scheme, right? And Michael says, this is not a pyramid scheme. In no way, shape, or form is this a pyramid scheme. And then Jim proceeds to go to the board with a marker of a different color, and he draws this, right? Highlights the whole thing. Michael immediately runs out, and he says, I need to make a few phone calls. <laughs> We have this idea, most of us, and if, I, if we're being candid, probably all of us to some degree, of wanting to get rich. You ever heard that phrase? That we want to get rich. Why is that? Why is the phrase get rich? 
Well, here's what it implies. It implies that we have not arrived at a place where we are rich. It's going to take effort and intensity and commitment probably to get there, right? That's why things like a pyramid scheme are so attractive. And I'm not against multi-level marketing if it's done well, okay? I want to be clear about that. But it's so attractive to us because it can happen quickly. In a way where it seems almost like, wait, I'm really doing this mailbox money thing. I'm not having to put in as much work and all of these things are coming to me. It's a normal desire to want security. Ultimately, to want things that provide security. And as we're going to see in a moment, that's not a bad desire to have. But the way in which we long to accomplish that or experience that satisfaction is deeply, deeply important. And it's indicative in our actions and our beliefs and our behaviors of where we think that security really comes from. You're going to see in this passage today this language that Paul uses. He talks to Timothy and he says these words. He doesn't say get rich. He says be rich. The notion is, is that as a believer in Jesus Christ, not only these who are in Ephesus that Paul is talking to Timothy about, but also you and me are people who don't have to get rich. We can actually be rich and live richly right now because of who we are in Jesus Christ and our union with him and the fact that all of his blessings are now ours. We're going to get a picture today of what it looks like to be rich and live a rich life. Three very real things that Paul points Timothy to to instruct those who are, not unlike us, in so many ways, rich. You know, you might say, I don't consider myself rich, Michael, but you're, look, the reality is you're in the top 1% in the world. And you know that. You have food and shelter and clothing. I would imagine that most of us in this place fall into that category. These are the kinds of people that Paul's instructing Timothy to talk to and tell them what to experience. And the three things he draws out for these people that they need to hear and the things that you and I need to hear when we think of asking this question of what do I have to give? Not what do I have to give from an obligation standpoint, but what do I have to give, right? Three big things that he points out are this. Number one, we get a picture of what real hope is. Real hope. Number two, we get a picture of what real wealth is in 1 Timothy 6. And then number three, we get a picture of real life. And here's the thing I want you to look at and see in this moment. Hope and wealth and life. And you can say, this guy's a pastor. I'm in a church. I think I know where he's going. I think real hope is in Jesus. And real wealth is in, in the things of God. And real life is found in God himself. And you're right. But the scriptures teach us this morning something else, additionally. These things are connected to real money. Like real money. Like the money that you and I have. God is concerned with how we steward what he's given us. And we're going to get a picture of what that looks like today. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. It says this. 
As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together. Thanks be to God. Here's the first thing we see in verse 17. I want you to look at this. He says, as for the rich in this present age, and to, to really kind of get a handle on the history, look, we're six chapters in to 1 Timothy, right? So we're jumping really toward the very, very latter portion of this letter. Paul's describing to Timothy and really instructing him to understand and see that there's a number of people that are a part of the church or churches in which he's shepherding that are, are wealthy, that live in affluence and abundance. And that means that they have extra, really any kind of extra, beyond food, shelter, and clothing in this day and age. And they have the ability to bless others. This is a pretty wealthy area where he is in Ephesus. And you can look back not only to chapter 2 and chapter 5 and some other very specific instances, but also historically and see that this time and this place, there are a number of people that would have been a part of the early church that were seemingly pretty wealthy societally. And this is what he says to them. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, I want you to notice the thing that he does not say here. Because I think in, in many Christian circles, when we begin to talk about money, and it gets uncomfortable, and we get to start to look at other people and what they do with their money, and we start to look at, man, maybe there's this church down the road, and maybe they're doing more than we are, or there's somebody over here, and they're not doing as much as we are. We begin to have this kind of comparison thing, and then we also probably go to this place of guilt and shame, where as a Christian, we think, well, I, should, I probably shouldn't have anything at all. I should probably give away everything, Right? Isn't that what Jesus was telling the rich young ruler? Well, not exactly. He was ultimately revealing to him where his heart lied, where his loyalty lied, where his allegiance lied, what he really loved and cared about. That his mindset and that his life was consumed with this idea of what do I have to give, not what do I have, what do I possess that I may give. Notice that Paul is not telling the people who are rich to downgrade their lifestyle. Genuinely, very clearly, he's not saying that these people are people of affluence and now they all need to become ascetic. They need to sell all they have and go live in the desert, right? They need to make themselves poor. That's not what he says at all. But he does offer a word of caution to the danger that they're facing. Look at what he says. He says, charge them not to be haughty. It means arrogant. It means prideful. It means boastful. So why does he start with that? Why does he tell them that here at the very beginning? Here's why he does this. Because Paul is very aware that the accumulation of material goods or wealth can lead us to places of vanity can lead us to these deep places where we believe that our identity and our assurance and our safety and our life 
actually comes from the things that we have. He urges these believers to deepen their recognition of who they really are. Because this is identity stuff. This is real life identity stuff. Like, who am I? Am I what I have? Or am I what God has done in and through me through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, his son? He says this, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Remember last week as we looked at Jesus' instruction in Matthew's gospel, specifically in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6, this idea of really storing up, and we see this in verse 19 as well, treasures in heaven, really focusing on things that last. We talked about three things that last. What are they? God himself, the word of God, and then the souls of men. So Paul's urge here is he says, this is what real hope is. Real hope is not living with the uncertainty of the things that you have today and possess now and earthly, temporal riches, but instead setting their hopes on God, who is the one who has ultimately given us everything. But that real hope And that recognition of God who has given us everything is not separate from or divorced from physical material things. Because Paul here makes the connection. He says, look, we can say that we're spiritual, but we can set our hope on things that are of this world. I don't know about you, but when I sing I Surrender All, I think two things. I long to surrender all. Number one. Number two, I doubt that I surrender all. We often live with this fear that surrendering all means giving everything. I want to be so direct and so clear with you. This stuff is hard to talk about because you're afraid. And I'm afraid. If if we really want to get down to brass tacks, I'm afraid that God's going to ask me to give him something that I don't want to give. Or that I'm going to have a brother and sister that needs something that I don't want to give. We can have the posture of the heart that says, I do, I do really surrender all in that, Lord, whatever I have, it's ultimately yours. You use it. How do we get to that place? Because our hope is set on him, on things that last, things that do not perish, his goodness, his mercy, his grace, his love, his peace. Not the Trifles, not the little things that you and I possess. Real hope. That's a spiritual thing, but so is the money that we have. And if we are living in such a way where we're dependent on these uncertain riches, then we're failing to experience real hope. Second, real wealth. Look at what he says in verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Paul gives a picture of what real wealth looks like. 
And this phrase is so wild. He says, be rich. He doesn't say get rich. He says, be rich. He's essentially saying, live in what you already are. And this is some real identity stuff because Paul is sharing and saying that everything that you are has been done for you. There is no more getting. When Jesus says it is finished, he meant it. He has accomplished life and salvation, redemption for us. And if I understand that and I know that spiritually, then now all the things that I hold on to and that I seemingly care about so much and that I've worked so hard to get, now I just get to be. And I get to share them and give them to others. Paul's describing a picture to Timothy of what the church can look like, this beautiful place. You go to Ephesians 4, you go to Romans 12, you go to a number of passages throughout the New Testament, and you're going to see this church that God designs to be one of unity and of sharing and of people in deep fellowship with one another. Go to Acts chapter 2, specifically verses 42 through 47 at some point today, and look at what happens in the early church. The way that they live communally and they share and they give. And I'm not saying we all need to like sell our houses and live in a commune. as Double Oak Chelsea, all right? That's not the point. But the reality is that we were designed for relationships in which we can truly, genuinely share with one another. Well, what does that look like? He says to do good and to be rich in good works. So there's this corollary, there's this relationship, there's this thing that they work together, that experiencing the wealth in God's economy and God's kingdom means good works. Well, go to Titus chapter 1 and Titus chapter 3 and go to Ephesians chapter 2.10 specifically where you get the picture that you and I are created for what? Good works. We're his good workmanship created to do good works that have been prepared for us in advance. There are things that God has called you and I providentially, sovereignly for you and me to do. And not to do a good thing so as to earn and experience or get rich with God. Not to earn his favor to get rich, but to be rich. To live as someone who's experienced the immeasurable grace and mercy of God so much so that we long to go and encourage and do good works for others. We get to be rich. That's what real wealth looks like. And I want to be clear, this is not a catch, but this is just reality. But he says the goods and the things that we have, the money that we have, the possessions that we have, are meant to be shared. That's what being rich looks like. That's what real wealth is. Look at verse 18. To be rich in good works, to be generous, and to be ready to share. From Genesis to Revelation, the theme is God's nature as giver. Has given us everything. Even in the midst of our rebellion, he continually pursues us. Jesus Christ pursues us. He's pursued you. He's come after you. 
and has graciously, benevolently—I can't speak today—benevolently given us all things, so that we can experience joy and life in Him. God is giver, and you and I are meant to be generous as He is. And that's this is what that looks like. It looks like sharing. Finally, real life. It's crazy to think that real life would be tied to money, right? In so many ways, we, we've lived that way continually. That my quality of life, that's what we call it, you know. That our quality of life is better. That our standard of living is better relative to what we possess. Relative to what we have. But look at what the scripture says real life is. After describing what it means to do good works, to be generous, to be ready to share, this is what Paul says. He says, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is, and look at these words, truly life. This is one of these like whisper moments where we get this picture and this phrase of truly life and it echoes straight back to John chapter 17 verse 3. And this is eternal life that you may know the one true God, the Father and his son Jesus Christ who he sent. This is what true life is. But in the midst of that spiritual reality, there's a very practical way in which the tangible things of this world connect to and, and reflect that spiritual life. Look at what he says. Storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So that's the first phrase. Storing up treasure as a foundation for the future. Well, look, that really, really hits on what Jesus is saying in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy, where things can be stolen, but instead store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So some of the same language is coming out and Paul is saying, don't you understand that being rich and living in a life where your hope is set on God and real wealth is understanding what Christ has given to you, which has given you now the freedom to share anything and everything that you have with others and live this like I surrender all. Not I'm throwing it all away or giving it all away because God's ordering me to, but this, this open-handed life is something you can experience now you can actually store up things that really matter for the future. I don't know about you, but I've had a lot of moments in life, and still do, in which present Michael doesn't do a great job of taking care of future Michael. Do you have that experience in your life? I bet you do. There's things maybe that you're thinking about financially right now. You're maybe not really kind of processing the implications of those things five years down the road or ten years down the road. Or, or what does it look like in the future? What, what's the causality? What's the decision I make today? How does that impact things down the road? I think like the best illustration I can give of this is this is old school, but I don't know if you guys ever watched Popeye, like the cartoon Popeye. There's this character named Wimpy on Popeye. He had this famous phrase. He would go uh, to eat, and this is what he'd say. He said, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. Right? So this was his idea. I want the hamburger now. I've got this insatiable hunger. And at some point down the road, seemingly in an arbitrary way, he just kind of says Tuesday, right? 
It's like, I'll, t- I'll, I'll take care of it and I'll settle the bill. I don't mean this just like relative to investments or credit card debt or things like that, but what, what are we doing today or not doing today is holding us back from experiencing true life in the future. What are we doing in our day-to-day lives when our hope's not set on God, when our hope's set on what's in my bank account today, and I'm struggling to give and to share Maybe even over the past few weeks, you've been wrestling and your heart is uncomfortable. You're not alone in that. I'm actually with you in that. God's calling our family to give more to ministries in this church, to various ministries. I I know this. I want to be obedient to that. Sometimes that's not easy. It's actually really tough to say, we're going to be all right. We're consumed with the present. With encouragement, ultimately, as Paul writes it, but really carried along by the Holy Spirit, is this. Is that, man, who cares if I store up a bunch of stuff for the here and now? Because the here and now is going to be gone. John Herring reminded me this week of a phrase that he heard in a a couple of older pastors and folks use. He said, I've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. It's just true. What are we storing up treasures for? Because ultimately, it's not just keeping myself from enjoying something that I want now and that I'm giving away so I'm losing. No, this is what he's saying. He's saying giving is actually the place where you get. Because when you give, this is what you actually experience. When you share and when you're generous, you're actually storing up treasure for the future. And look at this. Look at that last phrase. So that, this is the purpose, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You want to really live? You want to really experience what real life is? Then live like this. What do, I, what do I have to give? What, what, what is it that I can give you where I can minister to you, that I can care about you, that I can share with you? Because that's where life truly is. Now, that brings up some questions for us to think through in context of this passage. The first one is this, and it's simple relative to verse 17. is where's your hope? Where's my hope? What am I hoping in? And we might need a refresher just quickly on what that word hope means. It's not wishful thinking. Hope throughout the New Testament means this. It means a confident expectation in that which is to come. So what am I putting my expectation in for, for what's going to come? Am I putting my hope in what belongs to me? Or am I putting my hope into the one to whom I belong? Am I putting my hope in God? Second. Look out in verse 18, and we can kind of ask this question and draw this out. Are we sharing? Are we sharing? Are we seeking out others? Are we faithfully giving 
Not like just, you know, kind of paying the admission fee to come into church that we seemingly have like created in our head, right? Like there's this idea this basket comes around, I should probably throw something in there, right? No, but are we faithfully giving to the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And apparently we've repeated for the third thing, the first question. But here's what it is. Are we storing up treasures here? Or are we living in such a way we're storing them up so that we can truly understand and experience life in Jesus Christ? You know, when I think about giving, I think it's really important to ask this question and to just say, like, what does it look like? Like, what does it look like for, if I want to pursue Jesus, if I'm going to follow after him, if I'm going to live out my purpose, if I'm going to take intentional steps to walk with Jesus and to love Jesus and love my neighbor and to do it in community, what does that look like with giving? Well, here's the thing. We know our purpose is to give graciously to others as God has given to us. We know that intentionally we're called to give to the ministries of the local church. We know that we're meant to share with one another in our local church. Do you realize that we share everything here? Like We're sharing resources. We're sharing pastoral care and ministries. We're sharing teaching and preaching. And we're sharing coffee. And we're sharing, and look, we got a preschool, so we're sharing all kinds of stuff back there, Right? Everything here is shared. And I just, I want to be direct and I want to be vulnerable and I want to be honest with you and let you know just from the jump, here's the thing. I have no idea, no idea what any family in this church gives other than one and it's my own. So I don't have any idea what people in this room give. And we looked at James chapter 2, and it's one of the most beautiful pictures of how, I think, not only ministers, but we ought to interact with each other in such a way that we don't live by favoritism. Where I, I don't, I don't want to know what you give. You know why? Because I want to treat everybody the same. We are all brothers and sisters in this. And this, the whole point of our giving is to share with one another. But you might have the question this morning, like, what does that look like? How, how do I really know what I should be giving. How many of us grew up in a world in which we thought that 10% was the amount of money that we should give? Right? That's a tradition in our churches, typically. Where does that come from? Briefly, as we're beginning to close here, the, the idea is that God created Israel in such a way that there was this group of people called the Levites, and specifically there were priests that were part of the Levites. And so their whole job was not, not only to work in the temple like some, but to truly continually do the work of God spiritually for the nation of Israel. And this meant that they didn't have the possessions and the ability to grow crops and the things that they needed to sustain life. So God said, I want to offer an opportunity for my people to bless them. And so he commands and this is like a national and a very spiritual way of saying, this is what you're called to do. You're called to take care of the priests and the Levites, those who work in the temple, those who prepare opportunities for people to worship me. Well, here's the unique thing that we find in the New Testament. We don't really see that picture again of what we would call a tithe. We don't see that, right? But we've really carried that on 
in tradition. And here's what I would say is the theme of the New Testament. Particularly, there's something that connects to all the work of the priests and the Levites. And it's all found in the book of Hebrews. You go read the book of Hebrews and you get this picture of this covenant, and I love, so I'm so thankful that Drew this morning led us as we sang about Jacob, and we sang about all of these people who experienced David, this old covenant, and now we have what we find in the book of Hebrews called this, a new and better covenant. A new and better covenant. So what does that mean? Well, here's what I think that means. God gave his people this opportunity from the very beginning to offer 10%. And you might say, well, Okay, well, that's the metric. Well, really, there's nowhere in Scripture that has a metric specifically for giving or for anything else, I might add. There's not a metric for how much we should preach the gospel. There's not a metric for how many people we should share our faith with. There's not a metric for how many times a day we should read the Scriptures, or if at all, right? So how do we give? How do we think through this? What does it look like? Well, here's what I would just offer. I would say that if you're saying, hey, man, I want to give, I want to give, I want to, I want to really obey the Lord and really advance the proclamation of the gospel as a part of the local church in my community, I want to give. What does that look like? I would say that 10% is not this ceiling thing. I'd probably say it's more like the floor. Because we have a new and better covenant in Christ Jesus. And you and I, although we don't maybe feel it or we wouldn't call ourselves this, and unfortunately the world that we see would cause us to think that we are poor, we are rich. By and large, we have everything that we need and more. So I don't think 10% is really something where we should say, you know, that's the, the place to get to. It's probably more like the starting place. We have something new and better in Jesus. We have everything. And to that, you might say, Michael, I, I don't know if you understand the economy and the world in which we live. How do we get there? You might be in this place and you might say, we're not giving currently. And here's the reality that, that I know about our campus. I don't know who gives what, no idea. But I know that we have 85 giving units in this church currently. That means there's 85 persons or families that are consistently, continually giving to this body. That's all I know. Here's what I know. There's more than 85 individuals or families here as a part of this body. And here's where it comes to the uncomfort part. Some folks are not giving. And look, it, what Drew said earlier is so important. Every week we sing the offer, offering, during the offertory, we sing the doxology. It's in reference to the fact that everything that we have is a gift from God. And so we want to take that opportunity to give as he's given to us. But here's the thing. If you've been here three weeks or a month or a couple months and you're figuring out, I'm not, I'm not asking you and saying, hey, you're not giving. That's, that's not the point. But if you call this place home, if this is where God has called you, if you're a member of this church, share. Give faithfully. Give consistently, because we're meant to do this together. Here's the other harsh reality. It is an expensive world out there. There's a lot of inflation. Life is tough right now financially for a number of people. You might have these three words on your mind. I love the Lord. I want to give. But this is exactly where I am. I need help. I need help. I don't know how to get to that place. You might say, 
how, how do I even get to 10%? The beauty of the body of Christ is that there are people here who God has skilled and given abilities to help you get to that place where you can live in love sacrificially and learn what it looks like, not just to budget, but to bless others. So here's what I encourage you to do. If that's you this morning, if you need help, if you're saying, I want to I obediently give faithfully, not because Michael says so or because it's a good idea, but the scriptures teach that we share in this together and that I'm meant to take responsibility for my brothers and sisters and care for them, that I'm meant to provide resources and discipleship for preschool, that I'm meant to help keep the air on, that I'm meant, and sometimes it's all a little too much, and I understand that, but it's my job to help be a part of, of experiencing the joy of God and what he's doing for us in this place. I want to do that. I want to serve. I want to give. You don't know how. This is what I encourage you to do. Just send an email to giving at DOCC.org. And here's the goal. We, I, I'm not a financial advisor by no means. They let me graduate undergrad with a degree in accounting. There was a lot of grace involved, I think, personally. But I'm not a financial advisor. Here's what I am. I'm a pastor. And I want to shepherd you and I want to encourage you and I want to see you take the opportunity to step into faithful, consistent giving, not to meet a budget number or not to just help everybody's salary get paid, but to see you experience the gift of being obedient to the Lord and watching him bless you. You might need help with that. I would encourage you to reach out to us. We want to connect you with someone who is capable and who would, would be genuinely confidential with you, surround your finances to help you get to a place where you can give faithfully and minister to people in this room that are just like you, longing to know God, to live intentionally, and to be a part of a faith family that really, truly cares about each other. As our worship team comes, I want you to take uh, an opportunity and bow your head for just a moment. And I'm not going to ask you to make some decision or say, hey, we're going to give this much or pledge an amount or anything like that. But I do want you, and, and I'm going to do this myself this morning with you, as someone who is in deep need of Jesus continually. I'm going to ask myself, where's my hope? Where's my hope? Am I hopeful for today and this week and my future because of what I have? Or am I hopeful because of what God has promised me in his son Jesus? And when I ask myself, am I sharing? Am I giving? Am I taking ownership? Am I being a part of recognizing that and there are brothers and sisters who have needs and I get the opportunity to come alongside them and help meet those needs in my sharing. Third and finally, would you just ask God that he would make your heart, that he would make our heart, my heart, the team that, that pastors and shepherds of the church, that our heart would be such that we're storing up treasures for the future. 
that the foundation that we have, that the life that we cling to is found in Jesus and nothing else. I encourage you to pray that even for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we confess that we're scared. We confess that it's fearful. We confess that we've lost a job or we've lost income or the business deal was infinitely more expensive than we thought or, 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 or something happened, God. Something to us, Father, seemingly always happens. And so here's what we confess, Lord. We need you to direct our hearts and to help us set our hope in you. Father, we need you to help us desire to surrender all in the, so that brothers and sisters could experience you. Father, we need real life. Would you help us understand that that is only found in you? Father, as those things continually happen, as you transform us by your spirit, we will be shaped into people who truly ask the question, what do I have to give? Because we will recognize that we are already rich in you and we have the opportunity to bless others. Do these things in our hearts and our lives, Father, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.